You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm talking with one of private equity's leading thinkers, Cyril Demaria, about a major problem facing all institutional investors who run an alternatives programme. Cyril is a venture capital fund investor himself, with experience leading private market investment and research programmes for major banks through to specialist fund of funds. He's also an affiliate professor at EDEC and co-author of a new book called Asset Allocation and Private Markets. Cyril, you've been thinking about how institutional investors should prosecute a private markets investment program for most of your career. You've been an investor and you are an investor and you're a lecturer on this and you've spent the recent years writing and co-authoring a book which is just out called Asset Allocation and Private Markets. Um, This isn't a new topic per se but it's not going away and there seems to be a fundamental problem with the traditional way that institutional investors approach alternative investments. And given the size of that market and the growth of that market, it's a problem that needs to be dealt with. How would you articulate the nature of the problem? What is it? Well, Ross, you, you said it very well, actually. It's, um, it's, it's, it's not a new problem. It's, it's something which was in the background for a long time. Uh, the, the size of the asset class increases the, the frictions and notably the fact that uh, in, institutional investors want to allocate more and more. So, so what's the origin of the issue? The, the, the framework that they use, what I would call the standard framework, has been designed um, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And it's a very clever approach, but it uses listed assets. So listed bonds, listed stocks, and then um, a few people got Nobel Prizes on the way, explaining that you might have an optimal um, format, what they call the efficient frontier, where it's very difficult to do better. It's easy to do worse, but nobody wants to do worse. And, and you would end up on this efficient frontier, depending on your risk appetite. Now, the, the, the specific part of listed assets, obviously, is that they can be traded uh, more or less at any time for a very li- limited price or even no no cost at all and and this of course doesn't apply to to private markets uh, private markets differentiate themselves by being very sticky in a way you cannot trade them very easily if you do uh, the price at which you're going to transact is not necessarily the face value of the assets it might involve a discount on the secondary market which is not an organized market where there is never any guarantee that you're going to be able to transact and, and if you do, as I said, that might come up with a hefty discount. It could be up to 20, 30% routinely, but in very stressed time, like we experienced in 2008 and nine, it can go to 50, 60, 70% discount. So <clears throat> that's the first element. The second element is that even the measurements of risks and performances are very different from the listed world and uh, sorry, between the listed world and, and the private market world. One of the key uh, metric of risk in the listed world is what we call volatility. So the variation of price, right? And, and this variation of price assumes that the price can move and so that there is tradability. In private markets, um, we don't get a lot of variation. Um, we have been trying to somehow mark to market the asset. So establish what we would call a fair market value but first of all it's more or less every quarter and it reflects on the recent past the recent past being defined maybe as the last quarter but maybe the last two the last three quarters so the variation 
of, of price in private markets is, is much more smoother uh, to the point that some offers even try to dismove uh, this and true try to uncover some some truth in the process but um it, it doesn't solve our issue which is that uh, by the microsecond uh listed prices evolve and reflect the, the total information whereas private market prices cannot do that so that's been uh let's say a recurring source of friction and since institutional investors have been gradually increasing their exposure now we we end up with this situation where you cannot really ignore anymore that there is this uh, pool of assets that don't match in your framework, but you don't really have an easy bridge between this world and your main world, which is the listed world. So you're referring to the capital asset pricing model, and uh, I can't yeah. remember, is it Markowitz who won the Nobel Prize? For Correct. That? And mm -hmm. so, so it's has it served us relatively well up until the emergence of illiquid assets or is there a more fundamental issue with it do you think uh that's a um, challenging question an interesting one um, to some extent since it was adopted very widely you would assume that it served its purpose uh, the thing is that there is a few let's say basic assumptions which um I would say don't necessarily uh, prove to be valid anymore. And let, let me dig into that because that's very important also in the, in the light of private markets. Um, <clears throat> basically, so far, what we've been trying is to uh, square the peg of private markets. So try to force it into this traditional framework. Now, the traditional framework assumes that markets are efficient. That's one thing. And Actually, it's not necessarily proven. Actually, the academic literature itself often details the fact that it's not true uh, in many, many contexts. And the second thing is that there is constant tra tradability. And we know that it's actually very variable. And, uh, and in stress time, the tradability can drop dramatically. And, and that's even recognized now as, as a market risk. Um, so what we often describe as liquidity, which is a word which for me is very uncomfortable because it encompasses too much and it, it, it lacks a little bit of precision. But the tradability is something which is variable. And so the, the, the standard framework assumes that you have efficiency and you have tradability. So already these two elements are a little bit, um, let's say, uh, challenged. And, and then beyond that, uh, the way we we think about the markets, about the fact that there is offer and demand, that it's a single marketplace. This, for example, doesn't necessarily uh, prove to be true. Um, even if you really think about it, um, uh, and and you know, besides all the uh, background, the academic background that we would have acquired over time, the notion of market capitalization is a proxy itself. Um, you take a marginal price at a given time with an offer and demand and so you have this little sparkle which is a price and then you multiply this by the number of shares which is outstanding for a given company and you say that's the value of the firm but what we know is that it's far from being the true it's a proxy it, it's an interesting proxy it's a useful one but it's not necessarily true if you look at what happens today you will see that blocks of shares are being traded on the separate uh, um, let's say venue, which is called a dark pool, for example. 
And then the prices are reconciled at the end of the day with the main venue. And if you buy a company, as it happened, for example, some time ago with Dell Computers, the price at which Dell was acquired differed from the market capitalization, which was witnessed that day or over the course of the last six months. It was acquired at a premium. So it tells us that the notion of price, which is so important and, and, and on which we rely a lot in the standard framework itself is a concept which is not that clear and not easy to handle. Well, that's such a deep answer for 9 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. Thank you so much. Um, it's so interesting. Um, and the reason I ask, I suppose, is, look, if we've got a problem with the model, um, to what extent is it working really well for the majority of the market? Because if it's working you know, perfectly for everyone else, then, you know, that's that's one thing. But if there are some inherent problems for everyone, then maybe um, that tells us something about what the solution might look like, whether it is rounding off the edges of that square peg or whether you just need one model for one type of asset and one model for another. So maybe could you start walking us towards what you think um, a solution might look like or at least how an institution needs to start thinking about um, private markets? Well, it's interesting what you just said, Ross, because that's the logical next step, right? But it seems that collectively we're a little bit afraid of the unknown or, you know, questioning something in which we have so much vested interest. It's like the model almost itself, the standard framework, has acquired its own life. And it's extremely difficult just to somehow um, discuss it or even criticize it. And so... Um, to, to your point, and I agree with you, um, if, if it's not satisfying, we should think about something else. The thing is to think about a new model, you would need to introduce a new dimension. As we know finance, we know that there is risk and there is expected return. And the connection between the two is almost as solid as in you know particle physics. There is some bounds you cannot really break. You need a massive amount of energy. And so finance is a little bit like this. But what we observe is that if you want to integrate private markets, suddenly you need X, Y, and Z, and Z being the time. And that's where actually the standard framework doesn't really apply because Markowitz didn't include that. The efficient frontier remains valid because it's, it's a result of a massive statistical effort and that's somehow an optimum, right? But in our world, uh, what you need to integrate now is the fact that you need to think about the next three to five to seven to 10 years, depending if you want to invest in growth or buyout or if you want to invest in timber or infrastructure. This Z-axis is very, very challenging to integrate. We are not used to it. And so um, in that context, we will need to forge new tools where we need to rethink a lot of elements. And I'm not sure of who um, so far would be able to do that. And, and, and the intensity of the effort, of course, is massive, which leads me to the second part of your question. So how do we do it then? And in your idea to do it separately, of course, comes to mind. So. We have the listed wealth, we keep the standard framework, we have private markets, and then we started to develop our own tools there. So we have the IR, which we don't like, but we use. Uh, there is a multiple of invested capital, and more recently, for example, the public market equivalent, which has been you know, refined over time. And so we're 
a bit happy with that. We don't really measure risk very well, but we start to have an idea of maybe we could do it like this. Maybe we should use this kind of instrument, which is, for example, using in insurance uh, analysis or pension fund analysis like the value at risk. And <clears throat> so somehow we start to see that this starts to coalesce to have this risk return approach. Um, but reconciling these two worlds is where you need to be very creative. And so, <clears throat> and that's the last part of your question, to, to merge these two areas, you need to somehow convert the message. You need to create a kind of translator um, to somehow talk the language of public markets with private ones, or <laughs> if it would ever make sense to convert a public market language into the private one. <clears throat> and, and that's where, um, uh, at the moment, we, we stand. So what, what we try to explain in the book is that, unfortunately, um, there was no Nobel Prize among the list of the offers. So we came up with a very uh, a practical way to do it, which is somehow to extract some of the key information from the private world to uh, feed in the, the public world, run a few tests, optimizers, as they call them here, see the results, and then see how we can uh, replicate this exercise regularly. So it's, it's really uh, somehow crushing uh, the, public, the private market uh, input and, and, and trying to fit it uh, with a trickle of uh, relevant information in, into the broader context. And this works to a certain extent. Um, the, the other approach was to say we could also optimize the private market world separately and then run it with, with you know, um, the ob ob uh, target of r uh, getting this trickle I was referring to, to fit it in the, in the listed market. So ultimately, you could also think I did my job on the private world, and I can really input in the public one, uh, the, the standard framework, uh, what, what is relevant, and run a few scenarios like this. So that's been, let's say, the, the approach of the book so far. It's far from being as elegant as you would assume a model would be, and, and you know, mathematicians love elegance. So it, it's, I have to, to give a spoiler here. Um, it's not necessarily uh, as elegant as someone would hope. Do you think that's the nature of the problem? Do you think there are only imperfect solutions and those solutions are going to be horses for courses? Or do you think one day someone's going to get a Nobel Prize for this? If um, I think someone could, um, uh, they're very brilliant people um, in the academic world. Um, some of them have started to think, uh, trying to build a unified framework. I think about Andrew Lowe. Um, he's trying to, you know, bridge uh, different worlds and, and have this unified perspective, just like in physics, they try to do that. For example, have this unified model which would explain the universe. Um, <clears throat> um, it, it's challenging, and I think um, um, it, it might be a collective effort more than just one person, a new Markovitz, um, because the question of duration is actually fairly challenging. Um, let's take a very concrete example. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about duration, um, um, uh, we talk about compensation of uh, postponing uh, the use of capital, right? That's part of what you would call the premium, uh, and that's what fixed income gives you, besides the fact that you take the risk of being never re repaid, right? 
And so <clears throat> um, if you start to introduce this third dimension, you would have to analyze the duration more in details and, and what does it entail. And for example, in private equity, often uh, the, the critics say, we don't create any value, it's just postponement, deferment of, of, um, of uh, let's say, the use of capital and taking a higher risk of not being repaid. So you would need to have a massive statistical effort to sort out what is the deferment, what is the risk of not being repaid, and if there is value creation, what comes from the value creation in terms of compensation. One of the things we show in the book is that duration is not the risk. That sounds you know, very obvious, maybe, as we phrase it today, um, but actually it's, it's, it's an improvement because the critics of the asset class say, well, you know, there is a risk involved and, and so there is a correlation between the duration and the return. And we show that actually it's not that simple and, and actually, no, it's just another dimension of thinking in private markets. I mean, um, I'm not a mathematician, but I look at the capital asset pricing model and people seem to like it because it's simple. Um, but it's only simple for a formula. It's not simple, you know, in terms of, it's not like a proverb is simple. Um, and so I was thinking, well, if I was to apply a proverb to it, what would it be? And I kind of think that it's, it's relative, the world is zero sum, you know, you don't get something for nothing. If you increase your risk, um, you know, you, only, you can only increase your return by increasing your risk. That may be how the world works, but I'm not sure it is. And if it isn't, then, um, so for example, in private markets, one, one hack for that, one skew for that could be the very fact that you're, that you're committing and uh, that you ha you're having to be patient. And so that's my layman's interpretation of what you're, of, of the duration aspect, I suppose. Have you been able to quantify in any way the importance, the importance of duration and time in the market, in private markets? Um, unfortunately, no. Um, we have some elements of answer, but not an absolute answer. We know that, for example, there is a minimum beyond, uh, sorry, below which uh, it doesn't make sense, for example, to invest in private markets. Then what we did is that we started to analyze what we call, for the sake of an expression, uh, duration risk. So what's the variation? For example, if you do a venture investment and you have an average exposure of around four, four and a half years, what's the risk that you go down substantially? Like if you're between 96 and 99 in the US, and that would be around two years. So you see that already, you have this point and then you can draw almost a line here and showing, well, this is the minimum exposure and that's a risk in itself, right? Just like volatility is a risk when the asset prices go up, they also go down. You could, you could compute like uh, a full volatility risk. So a, dura a reduced duration might be a risk for some investors who don't like to have cash sitting idle on their balance sheet, who have opportunity costs. And then of course, there is the other side, which is, What's the maximum exposure? And it can go up to eight years, for example, and that's, a, a, let's say, an average uh, of the maximum. So it can probably go down to um, uh, single investments with much longer duration. So <clears throat> we, we, we could quantify that. And another finding we found is that when you have like the, the variation of the duration, you don't have a variation of the multiple thing. Lower duration means better performance. That's very interesting. Actually, 
the lower duration and the higher duration around this reference point, which is the pooled average uh, over the long term, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you have a better multiple. It's very interesting. You would have expected that if, if you wait eight years, the multiple would be better than with a four and a half year exposure. It's not confirmed at least in venture. So <clears throat> all of this means that uh, it requires quite a, an intense effort and really breaking down this big question into smaller ones, simpler ones, and I agree with you, sometimes simplicity is something we should value, and then try to tackle each and every single question and then reassemble the puzzle and see how it goes when, when, when we do that. In, 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 with limited time, even though the book was written over more than four years and, and limited resources, we, we couldn't do that. We just started to investigate a little bit, try to uncover some relationships and, and point out what would be the questions, but we couldn't go beyond. So would you be able to point out some kind of big practical tips or principles that um, institutional investors should think about when they're setting up a private markets program? Yes. Um, surprisingly, um, they are not necessarily related to return expectations immediately. Uh, what we noticed, and that's by surveying notably the very heavy body of academic literature that we start to have now, which is a good thing, by the way. And um, if I look back 20 years ago, we certainly didn't have that. So we made massive progress in terms of knowledge and documenting, etc. So one of the things we noticed is that there are at least three elements uh, which matter a lot. The first one is what's your liability structure? If you think about it, um, um, you cannot invest the same way if you're unconstrained or constrained, if you're uh, with short liabilities because you have former coal miners as pensioners, or if you have like young professionals in the IT world. So the liability structure matters a lot. And uh, alongside, it's, it's the regulatory framework. Uh, so it, it, it sounds obvious, but actually, um, it's crucial. One of the things we discovered is that um, there are very, very few really unconstrained investors. Um, even a high net worth individual has a limited life expectancy, maybe a family office, but over time, the hidden constraints are going to evolve. The first generation doesn't invest the same way than the third or the fourth generation of a family office. So that's one thing, you have like the explicit, but also the implicit constraints. The second thing which matters a lot is the size. Um, one of the things we documented in the book is um, um, Yale. Of course, uh, at the moment we talk a lot of, about um, this brilliant gentleman, David Swenson, who unfortunately passed away. He was a bit young, it's, it's very, very sad. He's, he's extremely smart. And so when we look at the, at the Yale endowment uh, asset allocation, which is regularly mentioned, et cetera, uh, what we observe is that uh, there was a size effect. Um, it, it's not a small endowment with 100 million, which could suddenly become easily the next Yale. Um, actually, there is no endowment model. If you look at the average allocation, um, you will see that it's a pure function of size and you have threshold effects. 
below a certain threshold, it doesn't make sense to do private markets at all. Above a certain threshold, you would do it, but probably with a specific framework in mind, maybe using mandates or fund of funds. And then above a certain threshold, you can have internal resources, go deeper, more granular, allocate more to the point that you become Yale, and then, and then you have probably a full team, and then you develop this expertise, which leads me to the third point, and I will stop because there are much more in the book, but um, since you, 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 you raised the question, the, the third element is, uh, where are you in the learning curve? Um, you can be very big and have the right liability structure. If you don't know, it's going to be very challenging to invest in private markets. And the learning curve, surprisingly enough, you cannot bypass it. It's, it's probably like driving a car. Uh, you know, it's been quite a few decades now that people drive cars. And when you start at 16, 17, 18, you have to go through the same learning curves than your elders. And, um, and there is no way to bypass that. <laughs> Even if so, now you start to have self-driving cars, um, I'm not sure it's going to save you, at least for the foreseeable future, the effort to learn to drive a car. And it's the same with asset allocation. You cannot copy paste. I think it's a, it's a key message. We, we tend to think, oh, this gentleman was successful at Yale. How about I copy paste the asset allocation and I will do Yale for me? It doesn't work like that. Swenson himself said 20% of the performance is the asset allocation, 80% is the actual deployment and selection of fund managers, etc. I wonder if um, part of being successful in private markets then is just um, kind of being introspective to some degree and and you know, know to know thyself in in a way that you don't need to in liquid markets because you can dip into a liquid market and you don't affect that market. It's you can't trace your effect, and and then you can jump out again. And it's essentially like almost voyeuristic. You're almost like a punter at a racetrack. You're not affecting, you know, the quality of the hay or even the odds by betting. Um, but in private markets. You, you by engaging with it, you are potentially affecting it. Um, but also you're on the other end, you're committing your beneficial owners to something. And so you're constrained from, from all sides. And then it's complex on top of that. So pri private market investing is therefore, it's just harder. It's harder all around. Is that, was that fair? Yes. And, um, um it's, for example, not scalable. That's another part of your very interesting analogy. If, I, if I'm my nephew or my niece and I have 10 euros, I could say I could reproduce uh, a listed you know, exposure uh, that is done with 1 million, for example. That's a little bit of an extreme, but let's say 1,000 euro can be the same than 1 million or 10 million or 1 billion. There is a point, though, where you could move the market. If you're the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund and you have like three or four or five percent of every single listed firm in the world and you move, you will move the market a bit. And so to, to take back your analogy, which I like a lot, um, you could change the odds in the way that if you're a very heavy hunter and, uh, you know, you go to your bookmaker, then you're going to change the odds. So there is a bit of that. But in private markets, you're completely right. Uh, it's much more visible. Um, and so if you're the sovereign wealth fund of Norway and you think about investing, if it's 4 to 5%, the markets can still absorb it. 
But let's assume they want to be Yale and they allocate uh, 40% of their, I think it's, um, it's around 1 trillion now in dollar terms or euro terms. Um, then you're going to change the market because they raise the funds raise on average every year in the private equity market specifically around 800 billion. So, of course, you won't deploy the 40% of the 1 trillion over a year. But even if you do it over five or seven years, you're going to change the structure of the market, definitely. And you're not alone. There is the social security system of Japan. You have Japan Post. And all of these big institutions are still, you know, are in the process of thinking and some of them not yet invested. And that introduces another dimension, which is if you are not just some kind of effectively passive investor dipping into the market, but you are having an impact on the market, you are you are therefore taking responsibility. You, you've got to take responsibility for your impact. And if you're taking responsibility for something, well, there's a new risk right there. It's a kind of a reputational risk of being involved directly in investment. Indeed, indeed. And I think your point is crucial as well. Um, we often in finance, we think re it's reassuring to deal with figures, right? Facts and figures. So my expected return is this, my return, my, my uh, expected risk is that, and then my duration is this. And, and we are happy with mathematics. It reassures us, it's factual, it's figures, etc. But, but the reality is that um, there is a lot of elements which would belong to this three areas which are very difficult to quantify. And uh, so <clears throat> if you're a sovereign wealth fund from the Middle East, and if you're a sovereign wealth fund from, fund from Norway, you don't necessarily have the same hidden constraints that I was referring about earlier to earlier. Um, and, and one that you just mentioned is crucial, Ross. It's, it's reputation. Um, the reputational concerns are very different because, as you said rightfully, the beneficiary owners are not exactly the same and they don't voice their concerns the same way. So <clears throat> if I'm the Norwegian and I look at the press, uh, I, don't, I don't read Norwegian, unfortunately, but I assume that they read the same press than the British, the Germans, the, the French and the Swiss. And so <clears throat> the reputation of private markets is often debated. It's not necessarily always bad, but there are some concerns which have been voiced very, very loudly. And so I'm very conscious because I have this um, implicit constraint, which is like, I'm supposed to be the poster child of ESG. I'm Norwegian. I manage oil money. I'm very, very upset about that somehow. And I want to make the world better through my investments. And then suddenly I have to invest in private markets and I'm not really comfortable with what it involves. Especially when I dip the toe with Formula One, it turned out to be a very, very difficult investment and actually a PR disaster. So um, that's also one concern and definitely it played a role in their decision not to go into private markets in the last uh, iterations of their, their um, let's say, uh, um, analysis process. Yeah, and it's decisions like that that make the market um, not perfectly rational and efficient, which therefore provides opportunities for other people. It's kind of a circle, I suppose. 
You would assume so, uh, definitely. And I guess some investors must have, must have briefed a little bit more easily because we know that there is capacity constraints. The very good fund managers can only welcome so many investors in their fund and there is, you know, a limit to how much you can deploy in a fund. So if the Norwegians came in, that would have intensified the competition to get access to funds. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, um, I would say there are some areas like private equity energy, which might sooner or later become a little bit like um, um, a paria um, because it's, you know, uh, non-renewable um, mm -hmm. and it's oil and gas. And, and we see that there is pressure. And actually, I mentioned Yale earlier. One of the constraints which was very difficult to assess, and that's why we couldn't really discuss it in, in the book, was the fact that the students put a lot of pressure on the Yale uh, Investment Office to actually get out of the fossil fuel. And I think uh, David Swenson resisted, uh, but it, it was an implicit constraint. And you know that sooner or later it's going to reemerge because of the, the preoccupations around the climate change. So that's actually twisting your asset allocation and that creates an additional implicit constraint which is very difficult to document. How interesting. Um, so, I, so unfortunately for many people, they can't just adopt the Svensson model, it, it sounds like. Is there anything though, are there any lessons that can be distilled? So one, one thing, for example, is um, I'm thinking about, a lot of this is about behaviors. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I'm thinking about incentive, individual incentives of portfolio managers. Do you have any thoughts on, on uh, how they could be um, arranged to maximize, you know, position of the portfolio? I think you said the key word, uh, incentives. This is a very, very challenging area. Um, one of the key critics, uh, which is addressed to private markets, is that it's an expensive asset class. And, um, and the answer is that doing investments in private market requires rare expertise, lots of resources, time, effort. And so uh, that's why we need the structure of fees, for example. Um, but then once you have accepted that, you just basically move the problem to the next stage, which is like, how do you incentivize, uh, for example, pension fund managers uh, to select the best fund managers, knowing that the fund managers are the one making a very nice living and the pension fund managers not necessarily being rewarded in a commensurate way. And so if you start to think like maybe the Singaporean, but you should reward these officers very well, then then the gentleman or the lady sitting next to him or her, which is uh, who is sorry, investing in the listed stocks, say, well, I should move to the private market selection because my colleague is very well and handsomely rewarded. And then sooner or later, you get with this systemic, systemic issue, which is how do I incentivize my staff without you know, exploding in terms of costs and, and still having this chain where everybody tries to make his best or her best. And, and so... <clears throat> That's actually a very, very challenging question. Um, um, there is no easy answer to that. But um, what we observe is, is that um, there is um, a bit of leeway here. Not everybody is, is um, let's say, incentivized by the same topics. So um, David Swenson, uh, it was notorious, but he was um, uh, approached regularly by um, um, other institutions offering him a much higher compensation uh, 
which for him, you know, would have made sense if he was after making more money, but he always refused because I think his motivation was very different. It was not a pure financial motivation. And now the, the key question for someone who would manage a pension fund is, given the liability that we just assessed, given the, let's say, the, the approach of private markets that we want to develop, how do I find the right talents? How do I incentivize them fairly monetary-wise? But how also, how do I make sure that the liability pool uh, is matching their, uh, let's say, preoccupations? And some of them might just enjoy, you know, um, having, let's say, this long-term view, um, let's say, not too much pressure on the day-to-day -day basis to show that they have been doing this and that. So there are different mindsets, different personalities, and also maybe different rewards that we can think about. Having said that, uh, this answer alone is not satisfactory. It's not, you know, the easy answer. But um, <clears throat> being aware of it is already a massive, a massive progress. The principal agent issue is a recurring issue, and, and in private market, it's particularly important so if i want to find out more about this topic and what you and your colleagues have have um have decided and concluded on it um how where do i go what do i search for and are there any other kind of recommended areas you'd suggest i think the book is just the starting point we we don't really try to answer every single question that would be very pretentious and and honestly um, it would become not a book, but a, an encyclopedia, if it's still such a thing at the internet age. But um, um, the idea was to, to form a kind of a nexus uh, where you would start with different threads. And then we have like this, uh, um, let's say, list of sources where you can jump in and then, you know, follow your path. So if you're interested, for example, we make very strong statements of uh, uh, the idea of replicating or dismoothing uh, private market returns. If you're interested, then we mentioned the academic papers of reference, and then you can jump into that and then start to pull the thread and then look at what they look themselves, etc. So um, that was the main, uh, let's say, approach. And 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 then we hope uh, that people can get the, let's say, the information level that they want and forge their own opinion. One of the thing we, things we've been very cautious about is not to instruct anything to, to the reader. We would rather that they form their own opinion, take their own risk, and somehow get to the level of knowledge that they want, instead of giving them like recipes that they should apply. Uh, we give them tips and, and you know, try to come up with some innovative ideas that they can think about, test, maybe, maybe explore different areas, but certainly not telling them there are five models, choose your, your model and apply this. It, it's, um, it's not the, the point, I think, and it would be a disservice to the readership. Just thinking about your book, actually, it's called Asset Allocation and Private Markets. Um, I just wondered to, to, to what it kind of asset allocation so the reason I bring it up is it's not called kind of like portfolio management in private markets and asset allocation in some respects it's it's not a goal it's a strategy and in some respects it's kind of a very liquid market view of the world you know I I'm going to divide the world up into these buckets and then I'm going to tinker with it so why why did you choose to focus on on that I mean it's understandable because that's how everyone does it <laughs> exactly um 
we had a bit of debate about the title and um, and the publisher of course put a lot of pressure on the topic um, because as you said this is the first thing that you would you know look for when you you start your search yeah. and um, <clears throat> one of the things we know is that for example in asset allocation you have something which is called a strategic asset allocation and one which is called a tactical asset allocation and if the strategic, which we've been discussing, Ross, you and I, uh, from the beginning of, of, of this session, is basically the reference point we implicitly chose. But when it came to tactical, <laughs> um, there is barely anything. So you have secondaries and then you have co-investments or direct investments, but that's it. And so indeed, uh, you're right, uh, we could have chosen a different uh, expression. But uh, the, the real choice was to say, we want to tackle the, the an easy part, which is that you have private market and you have asset allocation, and these are two different worlds and we need to reconcile them. So that's why we decided um, to head on, use an expression and another one, which normally don't sit very easily together. Uh, that was the, the choice. Right, right. I should probably have led with that question, but anyway, <laughs> we got that. No, no, it's a very legitimate one, and uh, and I'm happy you ask it because uh, uh, sometimes we just bypass and we want to go to the bottom of the technical aspects. But asking, um, let's say, um, broader questions is very fruitful and, and fertile and helps us to think. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked it, actually. Cyril, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Do come on. Likewise, come on again. thank you. With great pleasure. Thank you very much, Ross. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.